It is a humbling experience to occupy this podium where truths of the Restoration have been taught by prophets and apostles, both past and present. I am grateful for this call to serve, and I have come to admire and love the brethren with whom I associate. I am indebted to a wonderful and able mother, and a truly extraordinary wife, companion, and mother to our seven sons. I echo a sentiment previously expressed by Elder Scott. Margaret excels me in every worthwhile quality. I love her very much. Children can provide <coughs> wonderful and often humorous insights into life. We have in our family identical ten-year-old twin sons. In some circumstances, they are practically impossible to tell apart. Recently, we moved and found ourselves in new surroundings. Several days later, I was talking to Aaron, one of the twins, and I inquired about the big bump that he had on his forehead. He described it this way, Well, Dad, Lincoln, who is his older brother, was chasing me down the hall. He said, I ran around the corner and I saw my twin brother Adam. Now, I knew I could outrun Adam, so I just kept running. It turns out he ran into a full-length mirror. Life provides for each of us a full-length, wide-screen panorama of opportunities to run into ourselves. <laughs> the eminent philosopher Pogo expressed it this way, We have met the enemy, and he is us. In more eloquent terms, Moroni was told by the Lord, And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. For if they humble themselves before me, and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. As we look into the mirror at the accumulation of bumps and bruises that evidence our weaknesses, may we be reminded that there are two great stabilizing forces that can anchor our souls. The first is illustrated by an experience of several months ago. A stake president and I took the opportunity to visit a young woman in her home near Atlanta, Georgia. She is 29 years old. Her husband had been killed in a car accident. She was living in a modest apartment with her two young children. I suppose we expected to find her upset and discouraged at having received a bump not of her own making. On the contrary, she was cheerful. She was calm. She was very gracious. She thanked us for coming and then said, as nearly as I can recall, Brethren, I want you to know I believe in the plan of redemption. I am grateful to my Savior for the promise of a glorious resurrection with my husband. I am grateful for his redeeming sacrifice. Then, putting her arms around her two children, she said, Our faith in Jesus Christ will see us through. We came expecting to comfort and strengthen, and we left humbled and buoyed and blessed by her wonderful expression of faith. Indeed, we walk by faith—faith faith in the plan of redemption, faith in the role of Jesus Christ as Savior and Redeemer, faith that as the Son of God He has the power to save, to forgive, to lift us up. Because of our faith we repent, 
we keep his commandments, we seek his restored church and authorized priesthood, we listen to and follow the words of his prophets and apostles spoken from this and other pulpits. And when we exercise our faith in him, then Christ will help us overcome our weaknesses and the resulting bumps and bruises. To illustrate, illustrate the second great stabilizing force, I would relate another experience. Some years ago, I was serving as a young bishop. We were holding a ward social around a swimming pool near the apartment where most of the ward members lived. I was introduced to a new member of the ward, a young woman in her 20s by the name of Carol. Carol had been afflicted with cerebral palsy since infancy. She walked with great difficulty. Her hands were crippled. Her kind and dear face was also affected, as was her speech. But as I would come to understand, to know Carol was to love her. I had only to wait for a few minutes to begin learning the great lesson that she would teach. While we were talking, we watched a tall, handsome, dark-haired, very athletic young man dive off the diving board and seemed to injure himself slightly. He got out of the pool holding his neck, and he went and sat under a tree. And I watched as Carol struggled to prepare a plate of food and with great difficulty delivered it to him. A guileless act of service, of good works. Carol's good works became a legend. She cared for the sick. She took food to the hungry. She drove people places. An experience that delivered you pale and shaken, but usually in one piece. <laughs> she comforted. She lifted. She blessed. I walked with her one day on the sidewalk that passed through the apartment complex where she lived. And from the windows and from the balconies and from the porches came cries of, Hi, Carol. How are you doing, Carol? Come up and see us, Carol. And occasionally someone would say, Oh, hi, Bishop. <laughs> it was clear that Carol was loved and greatly accepted through her wonderful good works. My most vivid recollection of Carol occurred in the spring of that year. The ward had agreed to participate in the stake 5K fun run, an oxymoron term to be sure. <laughs> Carol wanted to be with the rest of the ward members, but we didn't see how it would be possible. For her, just walking was a great difficulty. Nevertheless, she was determined. She struggled and trained each day to increase her endurance. The race finished in the stadium. Two or three hundred of us were in the stands by the finish line, drinking juice and catching our breath. And then we remembered Carol. She was left somewhere back on the course. As we ran out the entrance to the stadium, she came into view, struggling to breathe, barely able to walk, but determined to finish. As she started around the track toward the finish line, a wonderful thing happened. Suddenly the track was lined on both sides with hundreds of cheering friends. Others were running alongside to support and to hold her up. Carol, of great good works, had finished the race. One day, each of us will cross the finish line. Will it likewise be to the cheers and encouragement of those that we have loved and served? Hopefully it will be to the approbation of our Savior, who because of our faith and our good works will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
I add my witness to the many that have been born from this pulpit. I know God lives. Jesus Christ is his Son, our Savior, and our Redeemer. He has the power to lift us up if we will come unto him in faith, with good works, and with all of our hearts. I so testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, these have been two wonderful days. I hope that we will review and ponder what we've heard. We've feasted on the Word of God. The music has been wonderful. The prayers have been inspired. The talks have been uplifting and enlightening. And our lives will be the richer for our experience if we strive to do better in harmony with the teachings to which we've listened. We regret that President Benson's been unable to speak to us. He's now in his 93rd year. His presence yesterday and again today has helped us. We've enjoyed his smile and the wave of his hand. As we bring this meeting to a close, I leave with you a statement from him his personal witness of the Son of God, whose servant he is. These are his words. Nearly 2,000 years ago, a perfect man walked the earth, Jesus the Christ. He was the son of a heavenly father and an earthly mother. He is the God of this world under the Father. In his life, all the virtues were lived and kept in perfect balance. He taught men truth that they might be free. His example and precepts provide the great standard, the only sure way for mankind. Among us, he became the first and only one who had the power to reunite his body with his spirit after death. By his power, all men who have died shall be resurrected. Before him one day we must all stand to be judged by his laws. He lives today and in the not-too-distant future shall return in triumph to subdue his enemies, to reward men according to their deeds, and to assume his rightful role to rule and reign in righteousness over the entire earth. Such is the testimony of our prophet and our leader. When all is said and done, I remind you that this is our great mission, to bear witness to the world, both with example and precept, of the living reality of the Son of God, the resurrected Lord, who is our Redeemer and our Savior. Now, in conclusion, may I thank each of you, all within the sound of my voice, wherever you may be across this broad land and across the world, for the faith which you carry in your hearts of the divinity of this work, for the devotion with which you serve, for your prayerful desires to bring up your children in light and truth and to nurture them with the good word of God. When you leave the tabernacle in a few minutes, I invite you to look at the spires of the temple just to the east of us. 
The capstone on the highest tower of that beautiful structure was put in place 100 years ago tomorrow. The Brethren at the Conference of a century ago urged the people to consecrate the needed skills and resources to ensure dedication of the temple on April 6, 1893. They met the challenge, and at this time next year, we will commemorate the centennial of the dedication of this magnificent house of the Lord. Its presence is testimony that no challenge is too great for the people of this Church when they move forward in faith. In behalf of President Benson and all of my brethren, I invoke upon you, wherever you may be, the blessings of heaven. May the Lord smile with favor upon you, that there may be peace in your lives and peace in your homes. May you return safely to those you love, and may the remembrances of this great occasion be sweet and fruitful. I humbly pray, God be with you till we meet again, my beloved brethren and sisters, my friends and associates in this great work. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, it's a privilege for me to be here on this occasion and to have the opportunity of bearing my testimony as to the truthfulness of the gospel and my deep love of its leaders. I pray for the Spirit of the Lord while I address you. Since being a very small boy, probably age five, I came to conference and I remember I sat with my father on the third row center section and enjoyed so much all of the conferences that he took me to. But I don't believe I've ever attended a finer and more inspirational conference than this one. I might add, it's been probably the longest I've ever attended since I'm one of the last speakers. A key document of the restoration of the gospel is a letter the Prophet Joseph Smith wrote in reply to a request of John Wentworth, editor of a Chicago newspaper. In the Wentworth letter, the Prophet wrote a sketch of the rise, progress, persecution, and faith of the Latter-day Saints. It apparently was the first published account of principal events that occurred in the 36-year period after the Prophet's birth. The last part of the letter, the Articles of Faith, is a concise statement of fundamental beliefs of the Church. The fact that one heaven-inspired person rather than a council of scholars produced this remarkable document is another evidence of Joseph Smith's divine calling. The last part of the 13th article states, If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. The word seek means to go in search of, try to discover, try to acquire. It requires an active, assertive approach to life. For example, Abraham sought for the blessings of the fathers, 
and to be a greater follower of righteousness. It is the opposite of passively waiting for something good to come to us, with no effect on our part. We can fill our lives with good, leaving no room for anything else. We have so much good from which to choose that we need never partake of evil. Elder Richard L. Evans declared, There is evil in the world. There is also good. It is for us to learn and to choose between the two, to increase in self-discipline and competence in kindness, to keep going, putting one foot in front of the other, one day, one hour, one moment, one task at a time. If we seek these things that are virtuous and lovely, we surely will find them. Conversely, if we seek for evil, we will find that also. Lucifer understands how to tempt and drag many of our Heavenly Father's children down to where he and his followers are. He rebelled and was cast out. He wants to make us as miserable as he is. My message may be the opposite of the worldly message of Satan's fallacy. Nephi described it when he wrote, Many shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And it shall be well with us. Nevertheless, fear God. He will justify in committing a little sin, yea, lie a little, take the advantage of one. There is no harm in this. And do all these things, for tomorrow we die. And if it, if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. End of quote. Though we live in the world, we must not be of the world. For members of the Church, seeking the good is more than a lofty ideal. It is an obligation we accepted when we entered the waters of baptism. We renew it each time we partake of the sacrament. We must remember, the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. We can seek to strengthen our families and can foster peace and happiness in our homes, making them a safe haven from the cares and woes about us. By example, parents can teach children to be kind, considerate, respectful, and supportive of one another, and to avoid strife and contention occasionally. Family members should treat each other with great courtesy, and uh, they should also, as they do, even acquaintances or strangers. Family members do have differences that can cause friction, but they should reserve their most tender affection for those who are closest to them, their spouse, parents, brothers, and sisters. The true greatness of a person, in my view, is evident in the way he or she treats those where courtesy and kindness are not required. We can seek to be good neighbors. In most cases, those who are good neighbors will have good neighbors. Being a good neighbor means doing more than offering a thoughtful gesture from time to time on a holiday or in a crisis. It means striving continuously to build and maintain genuine friendship. We react quickly in an emergency. For example, last Christmas our neighbor's car caught on fire. Everyone who saw the flames immediately rushed out to help. Do we respond as well when the need is less urgent but perhaps very important? Do we visit our neighbors even when no one is ill and no crisis exists? 
We can seek to provide selfless service because of the love we have for our fellow men. The Savior placed such love second only to love for God when he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Regarding these two commandments, we read in the first in the book of 1 John, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Serving others should become a natural part of life of every follower of our Savior. When we subordinate personal interests out of love and give of ourselves with no thought of receiving in return, we are moving toward becoming true disciples. The Lord has commanded His people to care for the poor and the needy. He said, And remember in all things the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. For he that doeth not these things the same is not my disciple. In a stake I visited recently, the unemployment rate was high. However, the faithful saints and leaders there have joined together with a liberal fast-offering contribution to make sure that no one goes without necessities. We should seek to become self-reliant so far as possible, rather than depend on someone else to provide for us. Some people seem to have the notion that we have a right to everything in life without making any effort to produce it ourselves. Many believe the government and others should take care of us. They think they should provide food, health, care, and housing. Of course, society must care for some of its people, but the general population should get away from the idea of depending on the government for things they can provide for themselves and their families. We should seek to be happy and cheerful and not allow Satan to overcome us with discouragement, despair, or depression. As President Benson said, of all people, we as Latter-day Saints should be the most optimistic and the least pessimistic. Where sin is the cause of unhappiness, we need to repent and return to a righteous life because wickedness never was happiness. And you cannot do wrong and feel right. It is impossible. End of quote. I believe happiness comes from a clear conscience and from being without guile or deception. It means avoiding jealousy and envy. It means cultivating peace in our homes and enjoying the peace in our hearts that righteousness brings. It comes from a knowledge and assurance given by the Spirit that the life we are pursuing accords with God's will and is acceptable to Him. After all, the Prophet Joseph oft-quoted oft statement remains in force. He said, Happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God. We need not feel depressed or discouraged about conditions in the world, for the Lord will help us find the good that will lead us to happiness. In a day when broadcasters and publishers have rather free access into our homes, we must seek clean, uplifting entertainment 
whether on television, videos, movies, magazines, books, and other printed material. We should be very selective and choose only those things that meet the test of being virtuous, lovely, of good report, or praiseworthy. If it is questionable, we should avoid it, especially in an election year, as we have in the United States this year. We should seek to support those we believe will act with integrity and carry out our ideas, our ideas of good government. The Lord has said, When the wicked rule, the people mourn. Wherefore, honest men and wise men should be sought for diligently, and good men and wise men ye should observe to uphold. The Church maintains a policy of strict political neutrality, favoring no party or candidate, but every member should take an active part in the political process. We should study the issues and the candidates to be sure our votes are based on knowledge rather than hearsay. We need to pray for our public officials and ask the Lord to help them in making momentous decisions that affect us. Our beliefs regarding earthly governments and laws are summarized in Section 134 of the Doctrine and Covenants and the Twelfth Article of Faith. We should support public policy that coincides with these moral beliefs. Church members should seek to carry the gospel message forth to all who will hear it. We should seek without delay to preach by precept and by example to be sure everyone is willing to accept gospel truths and has the opportunity to do so. The best way to teach the gospel is to live it. Parents are to prepare their children by teaching them the gospel principles, teaching them to live clean, pure lives so they can be worthy missionaries and ambassadors of the Lord, encouraging them to acquire a strong testimony of the gospel and helping prepare them to prepare financially for this sacred service. Also, older couples should arrange their affairs so they can serve as missionaries. We can seek to enter holy temples frequently, to perform essential ordinances regularly for others who have preceded us. Temple work enables us to do for others what they cannot do for themselves. It is a labor of love that permits our forefathers to continue their progress toward eternal life. As valuable and beneficial as temple work is to them, it is equally valuable to us. The house of the Lord is a place where we can escape from the mundane and see our lives in an internal perspective. We can ponder instructions and covenants that help us understand more clearly the plan of salvation and the infinite love of our Heavenly Father for His children. We can ponder our relationship to God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. We learn from the Doctrine and Covenants that a temple is a place of thanksgiving, a place of instruction for all those who are called to the work of the ministry in all their several callings and offices that they may be perfected in the understanding of their ministry, in theory, in principle, and in doctrine, in all things pertaining to the kingdom of God on the earth. Regular temple work can provide spiritual strength. It can be an anchor in daily life, a source of guidance, protection, security, peace, and revelation. No work is more spiritual than temple work. In the words of Hugh Nibley, the temple is a scale model of the universe. The mystique of the temple lies in its extension to other worlds. 
It is the reflection on earth of the heavenly order, and the power that fills it comes from above. As spirit children of our Heavenly Father, we should seek always to recognize the divine potential within us and never restrict our perspective to the limited scope of mortal life. We should seek the Holy Ghost, who can be the constant companion of all members of the Church who are obedient and righteous. We can, he can reveal all truth to us in our minds and in our hearts, comfort us in times of distress, prompt us in making correct choices and decisions, and help purify ourselves from sin. I know of no greater blessing than can come to us in mortality than the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Surely we live in troubled times, but we can seek and obtain the good despite Satan's temptations and snares. He cannot tempt us beyond our power to resist. When we seek anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we are seeking to emulate the Savior and follow His teachings. Then we are on the path that can lead us to eternal life. I bear humble witness that our Heavenly Father knows and loves each of His children, and that His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, is our Savior and Redeemer. Joseph Smith is the prophet of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his successors from Brigham Young to our present prophet. President Ezra Taft Benson are also modern-day prophets of God. They teach us to seek that which is good. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, I am pleased to convey to all of you love and warm greetings from the wonderful saints and missionaries of Japan and Korea. They join the hundreds and thousands of saints and missionaries throughout the world in doing their utmost to be true and dedicated disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ so as to enjoy the blessings of peace and fulfillment in their lives and share the blessings of love and goodwill with others. I am honored and humbled by this assignment from the First Presidency to speak in this session of General Conference. If a wife's worries and concerns are a determinative factor for assuring the success of a talk in General Conference, then I'm happy to say I've got it made. <laughs> for the amount of worries and concerns generated by my wife is more than enough to assure the success of not only my talk, but also all of the talks that have been given and will be given from this pulpit at this conference. <laughs> what a blessing to have a wife who worries for you and over you. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 42, is recorded a question of great import to you and me who profess to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question as raised by Jesus himself is, What think ye of Christ? I am sure we have thought of or have been asked this question before. No doubt we have come up with many responses and all have been reflective of the deep love and esteem we have for him. 
It is not surprising we have given or have heard others give time and time again such descriptions as the only begotten Son, Lord and Savior, Redeemer of the world, sinless sacrifice, Lamb of God, light of the world, and countless more. And each time we bear testimony of what we think of him, I'm sure we do it with utmost reverence and endearment. It is also reassuring to know that what we testify is made sure by the Spirit. For no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And now may I humbly pose another important question that may be considered a follow-up to what think you of Christ. It is not a question found in the scriptures, but hopefully it may be worthy of your thoughtful consideration and perhaps also prove appropriate in assessing and measuring our discipleship, yours and mine. As a follow-up to what think you of Christ, may I pose the question, what doest ye for Christ? The main character relative to the question, what think you of Christ, is of course the Lord Jesus himself. We place him on center stage as we give vivid descriptions of his divine nature, mission, and accomplishments, followed by our thoughts and testimonies concerning his teachings and works during his ministry of three short years and the profound impact for good these have had in our lives. The question, what do we see for Christ, is of course of great importance because it poses a challenge that has eternal implications and consequences, affecting our mortal life and our life beyond the veil. This time we become the main characters, and we occupy center stage rather than Jesus Christ. The issue now is not what we think of him, but rather what we have done, are doing, and will do for him. Clearly, our discipleship could and would be measured by our responses to this question. And obviously, such responses must be in terms of works more than words. Jesus taught us, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. He brings home the powerful message that to do his Father's will is the key to entering the kingdom of heaven. To think and to testify of Christ are very important, but in addition, these must be followed by good works patterned after those of Christ. The answer to the question, what do we see for Christ, can be found only in the things we do for him. The burden of proving our discipleship, in other words, what we are willing to do for him, rests squarely on our shoulders. Truly by his works, Jesus already proving the man he is and what he has accomplished for us. By what he did, he has left us an indelible description of himself and has made it easy for us to form an opinion about him. Now the attention has shifted from Christ to us. It is our turn to leave a description of ourselves by what we do for him. And this in turn provides the answers to the question, what do is ye for Christ? 
and the question of what we want people to think of us. That description we eventually would like to leave of ourselves as we labor diligently to answer the question by the works we do may well be called character, hopefully even a Christ-like character. The meaning and heart of a Christ-like character is beautifully described in Jesus' simple but profound statement, what manner of men ought ye to be, even as I am. And typical of the great man he is, he not only tells us what a Christ-like character is, he also extends a helping hand to you and me as to what we can and must do to have a Christ-like character. In loving terms, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. And you know the things ye must do in my church. For the works ye have seen me do, even that ye shall also do. For that which ye have seen me do, even that ye shall do. Therefore, if ye do this thing, blessed are ye, for ye shall be lifted up at the last day. Furthermore, he said, for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. And still further, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciple. And finally, simply but majestically, follow thou me. It becomes clear the wisest and most sensible thing for us to do as his disciples is to labor diligently during this mortal estate to become like him and acquire Christ-like character by following and doing what he taught and showed us. When we do this, our works become sure answers to the question, what do is ye for Christ? And in turn, they go hand in hand with our answers to what think ye of Christ? Indeed, our cries of Lord, Lord, and the works we do, being in harmony with each other, for sure will entitle us to enter the kingdom of heaven. The greatest of all achievements that we can attain in our long and challenging journey through immortality is when our claim to discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ reaches the stage where we can say with all honesty, His ways are our ways and His thoughts our thoughts that we may all achieve this through dedicated effort and steadfast faith in him, who is our exemplar of truth and righteousness, is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.